0: Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live, and it is my special honor to welcome our guest, Natalie Brown, who has been, let's see, in The Strain, Saw 5, Clarice, uh, latest, one of your latest movies, Thunderbird, which I just saw today. Oh, cool. I just saw it today, and I have a lot of questions about Thunderbird. So. I-
1: I might be able to answer two of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now it is a great movie and to not ruin the ending for people who have not yet watched it. When you got the script and you saw the ending that it was not native American folklore, but actually kind of realistic. Did that throw you for a loop?
1: Um, I definitely had a lot of questions about the ending and, you know, he's um, Nicholas Tretian, who wrote and directed the movie, had a very clear vision and the writing was great. And he, you know, said that he likes movies like, you know, Denis Villeneuve is one of his great inspirations and, you know, Ridley Scott. And he said he likes movies that ask more questions but don't necessarily give you the answers. And I think for him, it can be whatever you want it to be, but it's a metaphor. So it definitely gives it a bit of a sci-fi feel, yeah. um, um, more than just supernatural. But I think it's a metaphor.
0: Me too. I agree. To me, I would put it under drama, a little bit of crime, and sci-fi. It's a mixture. We call
1: of... it a supernatural crime drama.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Officially. <laughs> yeah. Now, your character is a mystery, okay? You just show up. When you initially showed up in the movie... I thought you might be FBI because you're obviously not a local. You were Mm -hmm. called in. So how did you build a background for a character where we were giving given very little in background information about how did you do it to prepare for the role?
1: Well, he, he gives you, you know, we know that she's recently reinstated. We know that she's made some mistakes in the past that had her suspended from the force. Um, and he gave me the backbone of the character, but really allowed me to flesh it out. And as much as you know, Seymour's along for the ride in this story. Like I feel like it's more Will's story. I'm there to you know um, live out my character, but I'm I'm really um, I really wanted to inject the movie with a little more backstory. That was definitely my inclination too. And I found myself in the the only time we see Seymour in her space is in a motel room. Yeah. And she's come from like a bigger city. It's like, you know, she's Vancouver PD that's come to a small town to, you know, bring her expertise and some resource um, to the area that is perhaps ill-equipped to deal with this very real issue. Um, And all we see is what's on her end table. And we see that she's got the clipping that you know she'd um, not work within the framework of you know the rules of engagement, and it got her into trouble and so as much as she wants to play by the rules, I think that she knows that you know you need some unorthodox tactics to um, to get some answers outside of a system that's very broken
0: exactly and I
1: really wanted something more on my end table, whether it was like you know <laughs> a niece or a girl or someone that even whether it was the last case I wasn't able to solve. And Nicholas was like, I don't want to spell it backstory. Like you can do what you want, but I don't necessarily want to like, you know, have it all laid out for the audience at the table. And I'm glad he fought me on it because from the very beginning, he said, you will not be wearing a leather jacket or a blazer over a tank top. This is not a TV detective. This is the Pacific Northwest. You know, yes, there are there's some inspiration from like shows that like The Killing that really have Pacific Northwest as a backdrop, and you know even now we've got Mayor of East Town where you know mm-hmm. you've got someone who's not interested in her appearance and you know she's not wearing hair you know hair or makeup done. She's really just about being doggedly determined to solve a crime, and he stuck to his guns, and I'm glad he did because the next day after shooting that scene, I saw a cold show spoof. Of like Dead Girl Town, and how you know every TV detective show always has this you know vendetta that every cop is you know or someone that they're looking to to you know seek revenge. There's this vengeance for whether it's you know the, the niece, the daughter, the you know the, the girl whose case they didn't solve, the cold you know the cold case they're still working on, and and it was a whole parody. And I don't know if you've seen the SNL Murder Digger.
0: Yes yes yes, yes. yes. yes.
1: But he just really wanted to go against the grain and work against any sort of tropes in the story. And um, he did I'm it. glad it
0: went. It, glad. it worked out. It worked out. Now yeah. Thunderbird is is a independent film. You have worked on major studio, non-independent films and TV shows. What attracts? Does it? Is there like a special place in your heart for independent films?
1: Yes, I, and I wanted to make a concerted effort to work more independent films as much as I, you know, I I love any opportunity to work with good people, good writing, great creators. Um, But there's something I really love about independent film, and I would do like whatever shorts that were available, you know, I'd work on them for free. um, Because there's something I love about, you know, the manifestation process of a writer or director, something that came from their brain and being part of, you know, manifesting that vision and there's something really communal about independent films because they don't have the budget so i actually did a great independent feature out here in newfoundland called crown and anchor and it is a family crime drama without any supernatural elements but it was written directed and starring all newfoundland actors musicians scored to punk rock and they said we want to put what little budget we have on the screen is it okay if you know there's no trailers there was hair and makeup, but it was like as soon as they were shooting, we'd have to turn the blow dryer off. And, you know, if you wanted to rest, you'd grab a roll of paper towel and just kind of crash out of the living room. <laughs> and that's what I love because my favorite part of this business is the people I get to work with. And the more communal and more family-like it can feel, the more I love it. And so Thunderbird was like that. Um, Vancouver, where it was shot, was so busy that it was hard to find not only equipment, but also crew. So a lot of the crew in this movie had just arrived from like a variety of different countries, and they all wanted to get a little experience working in the Vancouver film industry. And it's like, you've been a third AD, great, you're second AD. And you've got some experience on set, great, right now you're going to be a key of this department. And not to take away from, you know, the expertise, it just wasn't uh, necessarily a lot of experience, it was a very young crew. And I love that because everyone was just doing their best, learning on the fly. You know, when it came to some stunts, it was called, I learned what a hot swap was when there's, there's no time to go back to like a dressing room You just and there's no time or no budget for double outfits. So you just do the same. The stunt person usually goes first. And then when it's all, you know, hot and sweaty, you throw it on and you pick up where she left off. That,
0: that, that is, that's fascinating. Yeah. That is absolutely fascinating. I
1: I love it's like everyone throw their hats in the ring and you know let's you know do whatever it takes to tell the story and I like that sense of community that I find on independent
0: projects. Now talking about new people, your main co-star, Colton Wilk. This is his first professional acting credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was it like working with Colton? You being very an experienced actor coming up against a, uh, somebody doing his first professional acting gig. Uh, did he come to you for advice? Did you offer advice? What'd you think of him? How did that, did you guys mesh?
1: Well, um, like I was first approached by Michael Morrison, the producer and and Nicholas. And um, and I, lo- I lo- for, for me, it always starts with the writing. I know this is one of the questions you had sent me about like, you know, uh, what's some of the best advice you've gotten and if I could kind of sneak in this like, you know, tasty little caveat, one of my favorite bits of advice professionally was from David Bradley, Satrakian in the Strange. Yes,
0: and, and also he, Walder Frey and also Walter the Frey Gryffindor. Oh, Harry God, um, the guy is awesome.
1: His, his resume is so illustrious, he couldn't be more down to earth. You know, uh, he's just, I want to be David Bradley when I grow up. I still won't be anywhere near as cool because he's one of the coolest men with the best stories. But some people were talking about, you know, negative experiences on set or if you've ever worked with someone who was kind of difficult. And he's had the longest career and he's had zero negative experiences. I'm like, wow, how can that be? Like in all the things you've worked in over the years in so many countries, you've never worked with anyone that was a bit, you know, difficult or not had a good experience. And he said, I follow the writing. i always follow the writing and it never disappoints because you always end up working with people that are there for the same reasons wow and you know for varying budgets of course but you know if you do things just for like you know the paycheck you might have some people that aren't necessarily um
0: into the project as much as yes yes
1: and so back to your question i just love Nicholas is writing. And if the writing is good and the story is intriguing, even if I don't understand it all, I want to be part of that journey. But I thought I had one question. Um, your lead actor is ungoogleable. <laughs> and I've never met any person, regardless of industry, that is somehow not on the internet, Facebook, something. And when I met Colton, it's because he spent a lot of time out at sea on a, on a fishing boat called Ocean Twilight. Just, just, and yeah, just like the movie just like the movie. And there's this great story about, you know, he was diving off the coast of Alaska. He was, um, I guess, I think leading some dive expeditions and, and there were some people that saw that he was screenwriting, working on writing his first script and wanted to get involved. And they launched ocean twilight pictures. Uh, this is at least how I remember the story and brought Nicholas on to sort of, you know, tweak the script and make it his own and direct it. And, um, and, he was he'd been sort of having this story in his mind for a long time. He'd been working on it for a while, so had Nicholas. So even though it might have been his first professional acting experience, he'd gone to acting school. He was studying out in, in Victoria and was really keen on being a part of like movie making, you know? He wanted to write, he wanted to act and um, again it's just that energy of of people that are just really eager
0: and to you do guys- a great job and uh, and you guys meshed so well. Your character and his character meshed so well. Like a big sister, little brother type of relationship.
1: Exactly. And I think that's, you know, it's a really nice relationship to play where, you know, we were unlikely allies. Yeah. Um, but After there you was knocked him inter- on
0: his ass in the first scene, but yeah.
1: Of course. <laughs> Let's, let it be clear who's boss. <laughs> I don't want to make the same mistakes again um but he's got his ear to the ground and he's got access to things and people that the police just don't and i think that's kind of key sometimes to solving these crimes is not just trying to do something through a system you need to play by certain rules and protocols of course but um you know you have to think in some unorthodox ways and um you know he had that access and also having lost his parents and now losing his sister i was a surrogate sister mom parent um person i think to him so yeah i really thought the relationship with the movie was unique not something you see on screen a lot
0: now how about the native americans first americans the indigenous people were they brought on uh from outside or were they locals that were actors and willing to do the movie
1: 100 percent local like they had already brought the story um to the coast salish people and didn't want to do it without their input, without their consulting, without their blessing, without their involvement. Um, So we had, um, you know, elders, uh, hereditary chiefs, um, LaTash, his daughter, his family that were part of the Kokiro tribe um, up just north of Vancouver. We had uh, these incredible legendary mask makers, David Knox, who is the I think his great-grandfather, Mungo Knox, was like a famous mask maker for the queen. And they, you know, brought Will and, and people from the movie in to make the masks together and invited them into uh, their big house to see their ceremonial dances. And so it was just a, a beautiful blessing to be able to tell that story together with them. I didn't have a lot of involvement with those scenes, unfortunately. I wish mm-hmm. I was there for that. But just knowing that they were, you know, an important part of the process and you know, carefully including this, you know, th- their legends and folklore and uh, yeah, I don't think they would have wanted to do it any other way.
0: Yeah, it was beautifully done. Now, let's go on to what was to date your longest running stint on a TV show. And that is where I really became a big fan of yours and that is The Strain. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, when The Strain started yeah. on FX, I saw the promos. I'm like, this looks interesting. Let me give it a shot. I ended up watching every episode uh, as it happened. I didn't binge watch it after it was done. I was watching it live as it went on. You play uh, Kelly Goodweather, uh, who uh, is Ephraim, the character Ephraim's wife, uh, and you turn very quickly in the series, and I thought you were pretty much one and done. But you ended up being throughout the, fir- the whole four seasons of the best show. Best
1: worst thing to ever happened to me.
0: <laughs> that or best
1: it, worst the best worst thing to happen to Kelly.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, because I don't know if you did not switch if they would have just ended up sacrificing you. So getting turned into I guess a vampire uh, for lack of a better term, was the best thing that could have happened to your character. Now, when you got pre- first of all, did you have to audition for that character?
1: I did. Um, I had sent in a, an audition tape, not knowing a lot about the graphic novels. I hadn't read the books yet, um, but um, I had a call back, and it was with Guillermo del Toro and Carlton Cuse, and. Uh before I even had a chance to really get in my head and get really nervous because, you know, I love Penn's Labyrinth and even though I didn't watch Lost, I was very well aware of Carlson's pedigree. Um but they couldn't have been warmer, more inviting and inclusive and you know, Guillermo is like a big hugger. They're just wonderful, wonderful, creative, brilliant men. And um they said, Well, are you comfortable in makeup? Um and knowing that this is where the character's going i have a bit of a dance background so they i think were you know hopeful that i would be able to take on the physicality because there wasn't a lot of dialogue in the second season and um yeah i ended up with a screen test with Corey. i was pretty nervous but they even said we could tell you were nervous but your audition was so good and when i got to the first table read i think i'd I turned 40 that year and we were on a big trip with a bunch of friends. And I found out when I was very far away that I had to hurry up and come back because I got the part. And um, I showed up at the first table read, and Corey looks at me and he's like, You look really surprised.
0: Now, um, the, when you found yeah. out the cast, Corey Stoll, David Bradley, I mean, the Kevin durand and on and on. Yeah. It's the cast. It really was the cast that brought that story to life. Uh, when you guys were filming and you were done with the first season, was there questions that this might be it, this may not go for a second season? And at the end of the day... It went, the whole arc, and you guys got to start and finish the story the way it was meant to be told, and that must be so rewarding.
1: It really is, because, you know, we know in this business there's no guarantees. Mm -hmm. Even, like, shows that are doing really well are inexplicably canceled overnight with, you know, no satisfaction of wrapping up a storyline. There was a lot of um, hope and momentum just knowing that there was this trilogy very successful books co-written by Guillermo, you know, and Chuck Hogan. And knowing that there was a lot of great trust with FX, um, you know, they're, as we know, like an an edgier, riskier network that want to give their creators autonomy. And there was the hope that they would have four to five seasons to be able to tell the story from, you know, the source material of three books. And, um, you know, they were able to Still make it its own thing, not completely married to the books, obviously. Or I would have been dead a lot sooner. <laughs> um, not necessarily like dead, but a lot deader than what I was able to play. Yeah. And so yeah. Now in retrospect, we're you know just more fortunate as time goes on to re- like you said to be able to do four complete seasons.
0: And that show had a big following, a big cult following, and uh, I think that's definitely what propelled it. How, uh, like I said, you were, for the majority of your time on that show, you were in makeup. Uh, you were a vampire. Uh, how long did you have to spend every day sitting in that makeup chair getting all done up?
1: I was one of the more high maintenance stamps. I was four and a half hours in the makeup chair. Um, I think Quillen was a close second. Yeah. But, um, yeah, four and a half hours. I. I didn't necessarily have to do that every day. I would often only have to, you know, I'd have a few scenes in every episode, not every episode, half the episodes. And so I would normally work two to three days a week, which was about all my skin could actually handle. I think Rupert one time after working three days straight was like, you know, dermatologically speaking, we need to break it up. And um, I still loved it though. The makeup is, they're, they're such geniuses, the makeup artists that worked on this. Um, Colin Penman and Yontha Goldberg and Steve Newburn, who created the look of the vamps for Guillermo. And he's worked with them on, you know, Crimson Peak and um, Pacific Rim. Sorry, I'm moving around a little bit. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, and it just, it made it so easy to get into character. I mean, and I talk a lot. So I would normally talk through the whole makeup process. And, uh, you know, I take one look in the mirror and be like, okay, well, there she is. <laughs> <sighs> And then the feelers that came in to play in the third season, I mean, they did all the dirty work. My God, they were such talented little acrobats and dancers that I really just had to like hit my mark and, you know, say a few things from Kelly's limited emotional palette. And they, you know, gave me a little more leverage. I remember Carlton saying, the palette's added a couple of more shades, but it's still sort of limited and singular in your attention. You want to eat Zach, but you can't. Exactly. But you got access to some of your old personality. And uh, so I think season three, I was able to go back to looking like Kelly which was a nice break, but actually more challenging to do without the makeup I found.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's when they actually, well, the master did that on purpose to get at, you know, Corey's character and get to your son and get inside mm-hmm. and use you as bait. That's reason why he kept you alive. You were very useful to yeah. him. So, yeah, in the latter seasons they did uh, dress you up less in the makeup where you have lost your hair and you know you were just totally vampire-ish and started to look more like your old self to lure your son away and to uh, and you did succeed you did and i was
1: dressed by eichhorst you know so it was like <laughs> soccer mom in the bunny shirt you know. <laughs> The old-fashioned I, German.
0: Oh, man, I, of course. Talk about an evil character, but so brilliantly played.
1: So good. The brilliant Richard Samuel. I was so excited to be able to get to work with him almost exclusively. I mean, of course, there were, you know, so many times when I was like, God, I wish I could be part of the get-along gang, you know? Um, the Motley crew with, like, I mean, it's a trackian and um, Fett. And Dutch, I never actually had any scenes with them, and yet we all got along so well. I said, you know, I, they're my favorite actors. I've never worked with
0: <laughs> That's true. There's not yeah. any scenes with you guys. It's it's kind of yeah. hard to realize that, but there really isn't. Um, do you like how the strain wrapped up? I do. I like how they wrapped up the story.
1: Good. Why did you like it?
0: I liked it because it, well, it, it might be, you know, a typical trope, the good triumphs over evil. The nuclear mm-hmm. weapon goes off. They do get rid of the master. And, of course, this was not where, as opposed to like a zombie virus where you have to kill each and every zombie. Here, if you took out the master, they're all useless. All the like rem- taking
1: out the Queen Bee.
0: Exactly. Once you take yeah. out the Queen Bee, the others are just worthless. They're just, they don't know what to do. He was commanding them the whole time. And the mm-hmm. way it went out with the nuclear explosion underground in Manhattan and the way it was wrapped up, I think it gave the whole story good closure. Uh, quick question. Where did you guys shoot the strain?
1: Toronto. Toronto. My hometown.
0: Okay. Okay. They did, yeah. they did a pretty good job. You didn't do any exterior shots in New York City?
1: I think there was just a small handful where um, uh, Eichhorst had some scenes with the Statue of Liberty. And so I do know that Richard, I think, had to go to New York for a few, but maybe once or twice throughout the whole scene. Like Toronto was very adept at becoming a lot of different cities. And Guillermo lives there part time, at least. He loves the cruise in Toronto. He's made most of his films there. Um, He's got Nightmare Alley coming out. Um, that he just wrapped shooting, um, and that Crimson Peak, Pacific Rim, uh, yeah, he loves to run.
0: Okay. all right. We have a lot. You've been so much. We, we have a lot of projects to cover. Let's move on to your two episodes on Clarice, okay? Luann Felker. You were in a coma. <laughs> you were in a bed. You were the twin sister to the very evil Marilyn Felker. But what was it like uh, being on the set with Rebecca Breeds, Michael Cudlitz, and that who was a guest of yours? Cast. I yes, you had Michael yes. on the show. Yes, Michael Cudlitz is uh, yeah, he was a guest of mine. He's who he was one of my first ever guests to be honest. Really? Yeah, yeah, Michael such is such a
1: great um, guy. Awesome. Such a like wonderful actor with like a beautiful commanding presence, but like so genuine. Um, even when he arrested me I didn't mind.
0: And when I saw him, uh, like playing Paul Krendler on Clarice, from knowing him all those years, I've known Michael since he was Shannon Doherty's date in '90210 as prom. Okay, <laughs> that's how long I've known Michael. And I actually teased him about that in the interview that I did with him. I'm like, "You were Shannon Doherty's date in '90210." Uh, but can't get
1: nothing by you
0: he just going from like a character on the walking dead, like Abraham to Paul Krendler just shows the acting chops that yeah. Michael Cudlitz has.
1: Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, he And it, Rebecca breathes as well. I mean, you close your eyes and you think you're in a room with Clarice Starling.
0: Exactly. exactly. And she really
1: made it her own. I mean, she has a very musical ear, a complete knack for the Virginian accent. Um, it's just a wonderkind and so just sweet. I mean, you never know we were filming such dark material because in, in between scenes she was, even as I tortured her and stabbed her with needle after needle after needle, we'd have this great time between every take. Um, also, we were filming through the pandemic, which was really uniquely challenging. Um, we were very lucky that the film industry was allowed to continue by, you know, testing three to four times a week and, very, very careful on set where all the crew were double masked with goggles. The actors were tested, like I said, multiple times. But you couldn't really move around on set. It was just the actors had to stay in one room. And um, Domaine Davis, who was, the, you know, one of the producers, was wonderful. And um, Chloe Dumont, who directed us from another room with goggles and a mask and yet still able to, you know, convey our intentions and tell a great story. And it was a tall order for me. Marilyn was not an easy character, but I had a ton of fun.
0: Yeah, You know, you could tell Marilyn was not a bad person. She loved... She was tortured. She was trapped between a rock and a hard place. She loved her sister. Yeah. She would have done anything she could for her sister. And yeah. she had these bad group of people who now we know who they are. And there was that moment where Clarice did reach you. Uh, but you know, something snapped. She said something wrong. And when you were cornered at the end, you just took yourself out because why do you think in your opinion, Marilyn killed herself? Why would you say, I mean, she obviously had no way out. She was going to go into custody if she did not do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, was it because she feared the consequences from the bad people worse than what the FBI was going to give her?
1: I think that's definitely a factor. Um, it was uh, yeah, a rock in a hard place is very well said. But also, she had a very lonely, miserable, sad, difficult existence, exactly. and if she couldn't have this one version of some kind of normalcy and um, making up, you know, making things up with her sister and being able to provide for both her and and herself and. Sort of live the we live the childhood that she was robbed of um have the relationship she was robbed of with her sister and if that wasn't part of you know the equation then i just think yeah she didn't really have a choice
0: exactly now clarice was also also shot in toronto do you want so, a fun fact well, it
1: was my all my scenes in clarice take place in that one room mm-hmm. in Luann's. Long-term care facility. Yeah, and I do remember being somewhat nervous, with the pilot of the strain uh, It was a really big deal and we shot in this um, Old haunted house right next to the keg mansion, which is also haunted in Toronto on Guillermo's 50th birthday Wow and The scenes in the psychiatrist's office were in this house and I just was trying to like, you know keep my cool and stay present um, but again it was like very nervous and i remember that they started covering Corey first and then the and the therapist first and then all kinds of like other parts of the scene and then we broke for lunch and that was the birthday and then my scene was going to be at the very very end and everyone from the production office came for the birthday a mariachi ben was waiting in the wings i could see them in their outfits and you know with their accordions waiting to play and everyone waiting for the monitor waiting for my takes to be done so they could sing happy birthday (laughs) and as soon as Guillermo said I like that one I'm like great we're good and and so um you know all these years later this is another really sort of you know tall order difficult role to play and I'm just trying to you know be a little calmer than I've been in the past with taking on you know new challenges and dropping out in your, you know, your first day on a big set. And I'm rolling up to the set of queries and I see the Keg mansion and I look and I'm walking into the exact same building and the exact same room that we shot the pilot for the strain. in. all my scenes from the pilot and the strain were the scenes of Len and
0: wow that is that is a great fact right there how do you feel about toronto your hometown is basically the los angeles of canada now i mean it used to be vancouver it was vancouver back in the 90s where everything was being shot now it's toronto i mean it's like the la of canada i mean how does that feel
1: (laughs) i think it's really great you know i i I think it's really fortunate because I used to, you know, go to LA every pilot season and have to go down for meetings, and you, you really felt like you had to be there. Um, but and I would go, but then I would often get booked and come back to Toronto, where I live, with my home. You know, I've got family there, friends, my partner, and so I would sometimes feel kind of guilty where all the people from the strain were from, you know, Germany, France, England, the States. And it was hard for them to be away from their families. Um, and I, you know, got to sleep in my own bed and be close to everyone. And I just felt really lucky in Toronto. Yeah, it's a great city. The crews are fantastic. That's why so much production comes. It's not just the tax credits that definitely helps attract people to Canada, but it's the quality of the crews. They're, it's incredible. So, you know, the fact that, you know, like I said, Guillermo trusts the, the crews, the, the artists, the city, its people, its talent, its actors. It's a testament to the quality of work produced
0: here. Guillermo is like a legend, and he's still a legend in the making. And Mm -hmm. it seems like you have a lot of admiration for him. We hear nothing Mm -hmm. but great things about Guillermo del Toro and all his great work that he's done. Uh, I mean, what can you tell us about Guillermo del Toro, working for him? I mean, you've already said a lot, but... uh, what makes him so amazing, in your opinion?
1: I, I used to say, wow, he's equal, uh, equal parts, um, like levity and specificity. He's like just a tactician who cares about everything to like the smallest detail. And you know, he's, you know, he writes, he journals, he draws, he storyboards, he animates. He he has this beautiful, tireless mind. I know that when we were shooting The Strain, he would. Um, He'd shot the pilot in several key scenes, but then he was off shooting Crimson Peak. And I remember going to visit the set of Crimson Peak to say hello on the lunch hour. And that's when he was watching dailies and supervising special effects from the strain on his lunch hour while shooting Pacific Rim and producing, you know, animation in Japan. And, when, you know, the term genius might get tossed around a lot, but I honestly think he. He deserves it, and he yeah. has this like beautiful boy-like quality at the same time. Like, there was a scene in The Strain with Eichhorst. It was a very famous scene that involved pineapple and um, you know, torturing and priming Dutch for oh. something pretty, pretty terrible. Nothing was in the book, but Guillermo had a dream, and he showed up on set and said, I had this dream. How can we make it happen? And the next day, they were shooting it. They built the set, and it was happening. And I just and he's also really loyal too. I I got a call while they were shooting. Like I said, Nightmare Alley is his latest film that just wraps. During Kate Blanchett, Bradley Cooper, William Defoe, um, wow. the list goes on and on. And uh, they said we got a little something for you. It's not very big, but you're seeing movie with Kate Blanchett and Bradley. Did you want to do it? <laughs> I was doing my taxes. <laughs> I was like, of course. When says, you know, "Jump!" You say, "How high?" Um, yeah, it's just wonderful to be a part of his world and anything that comes out of his wonderful creative brain and soul.
0: Uh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we read it. Uh, I have not had the honor to talk to him yet. I hope to one day. Well, but- if
1: Comic Con's come back, I mean, he's the star of Comic Con. You know that he goes a couple of days early and dresses up in costume so he can walk around anonymously, like the fan he is. That's the thing. Like he's such an enthusiast and and fan of genres, you know, that he wants to be a part of it. So maybe, you know, when that happens again, you might bump into him at a con.
0: Well, New York Comic Con is happening this October, so we, you never know. Now, you were also had a small role, but you were in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. You played a CDC reporter, I believe. It was a small role, but. <laughs> One line. But what was it like going into uh, a reboot, the best reboot, out of the three original iconic films? Dawn of the Dead 2004 was the best reboot of all of them. What was it like going back, uh, just being, even as small as it was, being a part of such a iconic horror franchise?
1: I mean, it's pretty cool. Like, I didn't know Zack Snyder then like I knew him now but uh, the energy on set was definitely electric and you know i know how loyal fans are of the franchise you know um one of my best friends was in a george c romero film and i went as her date her plus one when it opened at midnight madness at the toronto film festival and it's just you know i feel like the fans of the of the zombie genre are so great so i did have one line in that movie and in the movie I think you only see the back of my head, but my one line was actually used in the trailer. So I remember hearing it on the radio and hearing it. You know, zombies are they alive or are they dead? Which is a real question, you know.
0: It is. It is. I mean, they're
1: very present, and you got to deal with them. So it, it was. It, if you're gonna have one line, it was a cool one to have.
0: So what? What was that? Uh, you said you didn't that's when you were first getting to know Zack Snyder as a director. He is such a. Uh non-genre specific director he does everything yeah uh what was it like meeting Zack snyder back in 2003 2004
1: to be honest i don't think i did like i feel like <laughs> i was at the very back of that you know cdc conference and he was at the very front and i was you know one of hundreds of actors that day <laughs> i didn't i'm sorry to disappoint you but uh, I, got, no. I don't have any good Zack stories for
0: you okay now another iconic franchise saw all right you were in saw five uh kinda kind kinda, but
1: not this is another disappointing story and it's funny because those two titles are what pop up first on imdb yeah but um i had one scene in saw yes and i i have a hard time watching horror um so i hadn't I'd seen the first one and it was a lot for me but I did know from the creators and writers that you might have one small part in one and you you become the lead of the next or the one later like Lyric Bent had a small role I think in two but then was the lead in three Yeah. and so they said you're a nurse and you've got one scene um, but we've got plans down the road would you be willing to do it and um, I think I was actually up for the lead which ended up going
0: to what, saw five or saw six
1: five five um, okay so i did the one scene and they cut it i'm not even in the movie <laughs> i'm in the credits only
0: that sucks That's That sucks. yeah well, so
1: yeah very disappointing for people that love the franchise
0: now you said you did not you're not a big horror fan now would you consider the strain horror i do do you consider it horror
1: to me, it was, a yeah, I mean, it's certainly not sci-fi, but to me, it was so fantastical that it, it doesn't feel like horror to me. Like, I'm far more disturbed by things that deal with really evil people, because mm-hmm. uh, that's something that's a really real fear, or evil spirits, which I also believe in. Um, whereas, I remember asking Guillermo on his birthday while we were shooting the pilot, uh, and he was sitting in the Keg Mansion that's like famously haunted in Toronto. And I said, so, you know, you believe in ghosts? He's like, well, absolutely. I can't wait. And I was, I think he was going to do a ghost tour in um, New Orleans right after we wrapped. I said, okay, but what about vampires? You know, there's folklore for millennia of different cultures and disparate countries that all have folklore around vampires. Is there any truth to it? He said, ghosts? Yes. Vampires? No. <laughs> so, um, so i for me yes i found maybe some people might have found it graphic and sort of scary in a graphic way but to me the story was more fantasy like fantastical so it's something that i could watch no problem
0: yeah and like like I said we talked about he's done so many different things but he does have his he did carve his uh he does have a niche in the horror industry oh yes he's very well known in the horror industry looking at you brought up imdb and looking at your imdb credits you have been very busy during and sort of now as we're hopefully coming to the end of this COVID thing you have been very active very busy uh what do you attribute that to whereas you know you're you've been in a bunch of stuff that came out last year in 2019 In 2021, you were in Clarice. You have another movie that's in post-production, The Breach. Oh,
1: you're going to love that. The Breach is um, uh, directed by Rodrigo Godino, who is the editor-in-chief of Rue Morgue magazine. Oh. And, um, which I wouldn't know. I certainly am not reading a lot of horror literature. And didn't know, but Guillermo was a fan of Roomorg magazine and he knew and, uh, he knew of and liked, um, who, the first female editor of Roomorg magazine is Yvonne Vukovic. Okay. And he executive produced her first short film. Ooh. Maybe it was called The Bird or Little Bird or something. And then she approached me to be an XX, which was going to be the first all female horror anthology, which ended up premiering at Sundance. And it was like four vignettes uh, with four. It was they were all written, directed, produced, and starring women, which was incredible because you know she said it's typically a male dominant genre, and she's set out to change that. Yes. Um, and so it was because you know you know Guillermo's support with her first film, and she I think liked me from the strain, so that I got to be a part of that, which was pretty incredible. And she gave me books on the psychology of horror. She's written books on in the genre. And so the fact that I keep getting these opportunities to work in it, um, I think there's a lot to be gained from not from facing your fears, which is actually a theme of the movie Thunderbird. It's about facing what scares you. And so your demons facing your demons. I was like plagued by a recurring nightmare when I was young and I still have nightmares to this day, which is why I don't get a a thrill from watching horror. I, I spend most of my time trying to avoid it. But uh, The Breach is directed by Rodrigo, who's a good friend of Guillermo's. And like I said, comes from the, you know, uh, his magazine um, that has you know, a lot of fans. And working with him, it's like a, The Breach is a psychological horror. Kind of a quantum uh, a horror that sort of takes place in the quantum realm. Fascinating script. I shot it in the pandemic um, with Alan Hocko as the lead. And the way we were able to make that work, I didn't work a ton in the pandemic. The whole industry shut down worldwide for six months. Um, but this is one of the first things where they found an abandoned Super 8 motel. And everyone tested prior to that, um, mm-hmm. isolated a little bit, and then got to the Super 8. And we stayed there, shot there, slept there, partied. They even kept the bar open for us. And it was really cool because I hadn't been able to do that with friends or family for like a year. And suddenly we were able to do that while making this really cool film. So, I again, I feel really grateful that, you know, they've uh, allowed films to take the right precautions but still be able to continue mm-hmm. as an essential service because we all know how essential yeah. content is when we're stuck at home.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And you brought up XX. And that was going to be my next line, next line of questions. Uh, okay. how did you initially get involved in the xx series
1: yeah i mean not not to repeat myself but it was uh Ivanka, uh liking the strain reaching out with this project um and uh it was based on a jack ketchum short story who's one of her favorite writers and the box which is the opening segment that was um adapted and directed by Yvanka, again this is something that asks more questions
0: exactly that then it does
1: give you any answers and i love that about
0: it yeah the mysterious red box that stops you know everyone from eating in the box i mean and that is just wow it's just a such a powerful powerful moment uh now you already mentioned you're not a horror fan and you'd be surprised you are not alone i have uh spoken to so many uh actors who have appeared in so many horror but they mm-hmm. just cannot watch it. So is it safe to assume like movies like Dawn of the Dead and Saw Five, uh, where you've had small scenes or your scenes have been cut out, is it safe to assume you've never watched those movies?
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you're,
0: not <laughs> you're not alone. You're not alone. alone. Okay, no, go. you're not alone. And I have spoken to a lot of people who are uh, afraid of horror, and it's it's perfectly normal and okay. Uh, but uh, a lot of them say doing it and seeing how it's done behind the scenes, and seeing whether it's a paranormal film with a ghost or a slasher, where you know where you go have lunch with the slasher in between takes, sort of <laughs> takes the scare out of it from seeing the final product. But I totally totally understand it. Now, uh, besides your movie, The Breach, which is, when is that coming out, do you think?
1: I'm not sure. I know that um, Slash came on as like um, a producing partner who's going to score the film, which is pretty rad. Um, And I'm not, we really don't know. I mean, Thunderbird we made in 2017 and it premiered at the Whistler Film Festival in 2019 right before the pandemic. And now it's just coming out now. So you never know sometimes how long it takes. Okay. To get from
0: it. Okay. Now another role, this is again, going back way back now, 2003, you did have another small role in how to lose a, lose a guy in 10 days. Okay. Yeah, not With, a war,
1: And I've seen that movie many times. Yeah.
0: No, no. That's- Matthew McConaughey, uh, uh, Kate Hudson, uh, One of my favorite movies. I love it. Uh, What was that like back in, like, God, that's 18 years ago now.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. Yuck. Uh, That was, like, the first Hollywood set I've ever been on. I had one line. There, again, I had more screen time in the credits than I did the (laughs) actual movie. But um, it's when I realized I just needed a lot more experience. Like, I just wanted to work on... You know, any kind of set to gain experience because I didn't have a lot at the time. And I remember, you know, this was back when you can smoke inside. So Kate Hudson was smoking inside, and Matthew McConaughey had these like kind of vocal warm ups he would do before a scene. And those vocal warm ups that he does ended up in The Wolf of Wall Street. I remember seeing the film and him and Leo in this scene, and he's kind of doing this thing, beating his chest, and then Leo he gets Leo to start doing it. I thought, I wonder if that was just kind of improvised. And they shot it, but then it became this huge scene at the end where the whole office is sort of doing this, like in yeah, you know, a yeah. vocal thing. But apparently no, it was like, that's what McConaughey likes to do before a take. And it sort of caught on and they incorporated it into, this, into the story, which I thought was pretty cool. But I remember being told to stand in a certain place. Yes. And I was just doing what I was told. And then all of a sudden Kate Hudson comes on and she's not supposed to know I exist, which is why she's hitting on my husband.
0: Yes. And she
1: said, um, is there any way that she could not stand in my eyeline? Like I can see her and I'm not supposed to not, not know she exists. I didn't even know what an eyeline was. <laughs> and I was before I could even say, but someone told me to stand here. It's just like suck it up and move. Yeah, You know, yeah, the show's got to go on. So that was a really, you know, good lesson to, uh, you know, really pay attention and. Uh, you know every experience is a good experience whether it's one line or no line exactly
0: all exactly everything is a learning experience now take yeah. us back how did it how did you get into acting did you know from a young age this is what you wanted to do did you get your start in theater a lot of a lot of actors get their start in theater move on to tv and films how did it work out for you
1: i think a lot of the good ones do start in theater um i sort of came about it sort of i don't know i'd say from the sidelines but I did a couple of plays in high school. Um, I liked being on stage from dance. I studied dance in Timmins, Ontario, and did a couple of of high school plays. But um, I had friends in the drama club. I wasn't even in the drama club. I was sort of an art nerd. And when I went to university, I was studying fine arts, and I would take a theater class. But I knew people that were in the theater program. And I got my first professional job, I guess, was a Heinz Ketchup commercial that ran for like 20 years. So I was working a lot in commercials, but because I knew how dedicated um, the actors I knew were, I never considered myself an actor, even though I was part of this acting union for a long time. I had side gigs. I was throwing parties. I had an events company. And when that dissolved, I thought, you know what, I really want to put my eggs in one basket and give this thing all my attention and focus. And I started, I think I landed some really strange small role on this MTV series series and uh, I started coaching. I started taking classes, taking workshops, and like to this day, I still work with one of my coaches 20 years later. So you know, it started with one line and then one scene, and then suddenly I had my first lead in a vampire movie with David Carradine called *The Last Sect*.
0: Yeah,
1: it was a loose homage to *The Hunger*. Yes, I was like the cat or the Susan Sarandon character being seduced by. Great Catherine movie, Dibb. *The
0: Hunger*. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, uh, yes, good you know, I forgot my question, but what, what I was going to ask is looking back on your career, what would you say was your biggest break? Was it the, the whole hunger thing or was it the strength? What was the biggest break that propelled you to where you are now?
1: Um, definitely. Uh, I landed the lead role in a series called Sophie on CBC in Canada, got picked up by ABC Family for a short time in the States. And I played Sophie. And it was obviously my first lean, lean role in a series. I was the titular character and I was freaking out the first season because I had the most to do with, with the least experience. But again, I just like you know leaned on these illustrious actors, uh, Mimi Kuzik and Sarah Botsford, Jeff Geddes, Amy LaLonde, who um, you know? We sort of came into the business at the same time. She had been teaching drama, and then suddenly we were you know working in the film and TV industry, and we just soaked it all up and you know paid attention and tried to do it with some grace. And then we got a second season. We did thirty-two episodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Canada, after you have a lead in a series, though, I went back to doing like small short films. You know, like, again, just um, anything to garner experience. And then the strain by yes. far was the bigger break outside of Canada, of course. You yeah. know, being able to go to Comic Cons and uh just be in the shadow of Guillermo was like such a thrill and a blessing and it's definitely opened doors in the horror realm. Uh can't escape it. It keeps coming for me.
0: What advice would you give young actors coming into this industry like you? You had you just we just went through a whole interview where you mentioned you had one-liners in big movies but there were one-liners but they were big movies your name is permanently attached to that movie one line whether it's cut out or not it is what what advice would you give to young actors actresses coming up in this business to if they do get that one-line role uh and some of them say well no i'm doing this for something bigger uh I mean, to me, that would be ridiculous. I would say you start out taking the job, you you know, get your name out there, right?
1: A hundred percent. I feel like any experience you can gain, um, you know, if there's people that say, well, what if I, you know, I don't know, if I just want to do commercials, I'm like, doesn't matter, study. Yeah. Uh, Whatever you can do, whatever classes you can take or whatever you know, theater productions you can be a part of. Or nowadays, I tell I tell kids, you know, when they ask me for advice, uh, even if it's for voiceover work, I say, if there's any commercials you like or if there's cartoons that you like or video games that you love to voice over, record yourself. And I just, you know, practice and practice doing. Like, you know, you learn so much by doing.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: you can read books, but ultimately it's about experience on set. And when you do get that opportunity, be as present as possible. Um, soak you know, everything
0: great... in soak, every... soak it up Yeah, like, yeah.
1: a great second hand story it's not mine but I did a couple of episodes in season 5 of The Expanse Yes. and Wes Chatham uh, had just come from having a part in Tenet and working with Christopher Nolan and he said there were no cell phones on set and no chairs everyone was a part of everyone else's scene even if you were in the scene and no one was given a script you were just given your scene the night before and I thought oh, wow And he said, "I, you know, he thought that would have made him really nervous, but it just made you really present. And everyone was a part of the filmmaking experience.
0: Wasn't waiting in the
1: trailer for hours on social media and then suddenly trying to, like, get into the story. Everybody was a part of it. I thought that was so cool.
0: Now, Christopher Nolan, I don't think I've seen one bad Christopher Nolan movie. Um, (laughs) Everything he does is great. I wonder if that whole chair thing is just his thing where he does it for everybody just to keep everybody involved hopefully whether it's your scene or not you are all involved in this movie and i think it's a great idea actually it might get it might get a little tiring but i think it's a (laughs) good idea
1: i mean a chair is (laughs) okay but no cell phones.
0: (laughs) natalie the time is up this has been a fascinating hour thank you so much for spending this with us
1: thank you so much for having me it's been a thrill to be able to talk about these you know projects that i've just been so fortunate to be part of and it's awesome that they resonate with people and i mean yeah i could talk to you for another
0: hour you've had an <laughs> awesome career you really have you've had Thank a great you. career and it, you are going stronger than ever and i'm looking forward to seeing more stuff from you i'm looking forward to seeing the breach and whatever movie you're filming you're not filming the breach now in Newfoundland, right
1: i'm filming a show called hudson and rex hudson um, and rex it's a, okay it's a detective show with the most beautiful dog <laughs> um and uh and just so you know Thunderbird yes is available now, Vimeo in Canada, but Amazon Prime exactly. in the u k and thank you for reminding me because sometimes you know it is a tough business where you don't work for there are droughts, but uh you know you got to stay busy and keep the faith and um and like you know
0: you've been very... chatting
1: with people like you and staying enthusiastic about you know the work and the industry and you know whatever drives you and you know keeps your creative juices
0: flowing. Absolutely. Yes, guys. um, uh, Thunderbird is available on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime only. Uh, So go out there, check it out. It's a great movie. It's uh, not full of your typical tropes that you see in any kind of criminal, suspense, sci-fi movie. It will throw you for a loop. Natalie's amazing in it. Some great performances in it. Support the, the, the independent film industry by watching this film Natalie any final thoughts you want to share
1: oh wow um yeah stay connected with each other you know this was wonderful just being able to talk to you it's been such a hard year and so difficult for so many people and I think it's important to stay connected whatever way we can you know watch the things that excite you share it with friends and just you know stay safe and stay connected
0: stay safe that's the main thing stay safe stay walking guys till next time on behalf of Natalie and myself Again, stay walking. Have a great day. Bye bye. Thanks.
1: Thanks, John. Bye. <laughs>